Our message this morning is entitled, I Shall Not Want, and obviously with the language, I shall not want, you know, if you're a Bible reader and you've committed Psalm 23 to memory, that a portion of our message today at least will be from the 23rd Psalm. But we'll take a little bit of time to get there, and from there we'll go to other places as well. As we introduce our thoughts today, just by way of introduction, we observe that there's enough in the world at any given time, whether on a worldwide level or an individual level, to send us all into a frantic panic of extreme anxiety. And we can see that lately in the world's economy. You have a fear of a terrible virus. Over the course of a week, time after time, our stock market drops 1,000 points a day, 1,200 points a day, 800 points a day. And the entire cause of that isn't necessarily economic, though certainly when countries such as China can't produce, you do have an economic impact. But the initial drop in the markets worldwide was simply out of fear. People got scared and people sold the stock that they owned, believing that the world was about to erupt spontaneous combustion into flames and fire, and we were all going to die. Now, that is a very terrifying thing. In the 19-teens, a flu epidemic swept through the United States. At the little church I grew up at, Ebenezer, in our cemetery there, uh, there are several unmarked graves that belong to people who died in that epidemic. And there are little children who passed away. There are elderly people who passed away. Millions of people died. We read of plagues that have troubled man throughout human history. You can read of the Black Plague. You can read of several different illnesses and pandemics that swept through mankind. So this isn't something that's unprecedented. It's happened before, and because of that, we always assume that it is the, the next thing that kills millions of people. On a worldwide level, there are wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes, and Jesus taught us that those things would be from his time until the end of the world. We live in a world that is what? Cursed. Cursed because of the sin of Adam, and so because of that, it brings forth thorns and thistles. It is a world that we toil in and we labor in by the sweat of our face to make our daily bread, as it were. It's a world that many times is a place of sorrow and suffering and anxiety and fear. I couldn't help but think this past week about the four horsemen that you read about in Revelation who go around and destroy. You have one of those four that represents pestilence, sickness, plagues, things that are terrible, and it runs rampant through the world. We live in a world that is full of suffering. One of the things that we'll consider today and that will unfold before you today is that God is not taken off guard by any of this. God is not surprised. And even if the horsemen of sickness were to run through our community, as it were, we know that Revelation is a very symbolic book, but if sickness were to strike our community, our town, God knows what's happening. God intervenes in our lives. God can protect us. And if it's not God's will to protect us from the things that threaten our lives, where is it that we go if we leave this world? In death, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us and who loves us. So, 
As Christians, we should have a different mindset in moments such as this. But you know what? Even though this world is one that has great calls for anxiety, your own personal life at any given moment has enough stuff in it, enough threatening things that are in your heart, in your mind, that cause you anxiety. You might be going through something right now that you're thinking, I don't care a thing in the world about coronavirus because I have enough things to worry about in my own life family members, job situations, financial situations, illnesses, sicknesses, loved ones that are perhaps dealing with diseases that there is no cure for. And so every single one of you might have a 9-11 or an April 27th, 2011 tornado outbreak. You might have a cancer of your own, a coronavirus of your own. We all face things such as that in the world. What should our mindset be in such turmoil. And we'll consider that today. Now I'll confess to you that I had a different message for you today. And about 11 o'clock as it was yesterday, which is actually 12 o'clock as it were today, my mind was very strongly changed. And that was confirmed to me in the middle of the night when I woke up thirsty because you know I, I apparently didn't drink enough water before I went to bed. I woke up thirsty and I just had these passages resonating in my mind. And as I went back to sleep last night, I dreamed of speaking of these passages. So I'm not one that preaches dreams, but to me that was a very strong impression that my mind was changed and that God had something different for me to talk about to you today. And so any preacher that has any degree of wisdom and experience knows that when God strongly gives you hints that your mind has been changed, you follow the impression of your mind. We'll turn first this morning to the book of Philippians chapter 4. As you're turning there, look at verse 6. This is one of the passages that we quoted last week in the close of our message on vain imaginations. Last week we looked at the imagination, how we use that word today to describe creativity. An imagination in a child is a wonderful thing. Anything that man has ever designed, anything that men have produced, the The wonders of the world down to the own home that you live in, some architect or engineer imagined it and they they produced it. And we refer to that creativity as imagination. But in the Bible, imagination, as we talked about last week, is a very negative thing. Scripture uses the word almost universally to describe the sinful inclinations that we have, perhaps thoughts of fantasy or thoughts of animosity, thoughts of envy, anger, or jealousy. Imagination calls early man to reject the Creator and delve into idolatry. Imagination is not a positive thing in the Bible. Of the imaginations that we talked about last week, one of them, perhaps one that was a little more personal for many of us, was that of worry. In other words, we sit at home or in our car as we drive, we think, and as we think, what plagues our minds are thoughts of worry and stress and anxiety. We worry about the what-ifs, and usually, more than likely, the what-ifs never come to pass. The things we worry the most about, they don't occur in this world. They could. You know Murphy's Law, whatever can happen will happen. But more times than not in our own lives, the terrible things don't come to pass. And we wake up another day, and God's mercies are fresh again. But we are people who naturally worry, and I think that today's message will further speak on that subject of worry. 
Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, Be careful for nothing. The word careful here doesn't mean what it means when we say it today. If I tell you to be careful, and if you're a Winslet child, you know one of the last things that I say to you before you leave the house with friends, if you're going to the skating rink, if you're going out with buddies, if you're going hiking in the woods. Last year I let Lydia go hiking in the woods and swimming in a water hole, and I got on Instagram and I see a picture of her, a video of her jumping off a 30-foot bluff into a, into a pool of water. Y'all can blame Sister Hannah for that. She, she took her. Um, so that was the end of her Flint River young people chaperoning career. But, um, <clears throat> but one of the last things that I always tell my kids is be careful, be careful. And by that, I mean to be cautious. And when Scripture uses the word careful, it doesn't mean caution. It uses, full of, uh, uses the word to mean full of care, careful. If you're merciful, you're full of what? Mercy. If you're graceful... You're full of grace. If you're careful, you're full of care. And so to be careful in the Bible doesn't mean to be cautious as, please, children, be cautious. Don't jump off 30-foot bluffs into water. It means to be full of worry and anxiety, to be full of care. Paul says, be careful for nothing. Don't be full of anxiety. Don't be full of worry. Don't be full of care. And you might be thinking, preacher, that's easier said than done. And believe you me, I understand it's easier said than done. I have five children and a wife who can't stay well. I think her hobbies include singing in the community chorus and going to various doctors. So I'm a person that's very versed in care. And worry. We all are. We all have the things in our lives that we worry about. And yet God tells us here through the pen of the Apostle Paul, be careful for nothing. Don't be full of worry over anything in this world. Rather, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Instead of worrying... In that moment, when you feel inclined to worry, devote that energy and devote your mind, your thought process in that moment to asking God to intervene in your situation. I guarantee you, asking God to help will do more for you in your time of trouble than worrying about it alone. And if you've ever been a person who has called upon the name of the Lord in your moments of despair and grief with the psalmist, you can say over and over again that you called upon God He heard you, and you were saved from whatever it is that you were going through in that moment. What is one of our favorite hymns to sing here, number 478, which is based on a psalm? I will call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be what? Saved from my enemies. We all have it committed to memory because we've sang it together. That's why we have... Scripture that is put to poetry so we can remember it. We speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We know that we call upon the Lord. He's worthy to be praised. And in calling upon the Lord, we are saved from our enemies. We have it memorized. Everyone in this room has that lyric memorized. How much more effective is it when we call upon the Lord in our moments of worry, in our moments of sadness, in our moments of grief, than it is to sit and to fester and stew in the situation, in the threat? And we worry about all sorts of things, our health, our family, 
our jobs, the economy, other people. Let me tell you what I worry about more than I worry about anything else in this world. I'm looking at it. I worry about you. I worry about your home life. I worry about your job security. I worry about you the way a person worries about his children. I worry if I think one of you is mad at another one of you. I worry about you if you miss church and you didn't tell me where you are. Are they mad? Are they upset? Did they go join some other group? Did they stay out all night getting into trouble? Why are they not here? I worry about you. I worry about you when you're not here. I worry about you when you're here and you don't look happy. I can tell if I'm preaching a sermon and everyone's happy and you look sad that something's wrong. And so for the next seven days, I worry about you. I worry. So when I'm talking about care, listen, I'm talking to me. Because I worry about you more than you probably worry about you. And I pray for you. I walk around this room, I look where you sit, and I pray for you. And recently a practice of mine has been to pick a family in the church. And sometimes I let you know, sometimes I don't. But I'll pick a family in the church and I'll pray for you specifically throughout the course of a week. The Lord's Day to the Lord's Day. Every day, two or three times a day, I'll pray just for you. And just devote some time to individuals or to families in this church to lift you up to the Lord in prayer. I worry most about the church. That's what I worry about. But notice again that Paul says, rather than to worry, we're to petition our God. The Hebrew writer says in chapter 4 that we are to come boldly to the throne of grace. Think about that. We boldly enter into the throne room of God, the creator and the judge and the Lord of the universe. Can you just walk right into the White House and express your concern about something in this world to your president? You can write him a letter. You can get on Facebook Live and complain about him and nothing happens to you because we live in a country with freedom of speech. Praise God. I was watching last night, for nostalgia's sake, some of the more comedic sound bites of President Ronald Reagan, who was a president when I was a little boy, and he told a funny story about an interaction that he had with uh, a Russian citizen, and President Reagan was telling the story that in, he was discussing this situation with Russians that if you disagree with something we do in the U.S., you can walk right into my office and you can tell me that I don't agree with you. And the Russian said, well, I can do that. I can walk right into the Kremlin, look right at our czar and tell him that I don't agree with you either. I'm talking about the president of the United States. Well, truth be told, you can't walk right into the White House and talk to the president of the United States. If you did that, you'd get about five feet past the fence and Secret Service would be all over you. You'd be knocked to the ground if you were not shot on spot. Then you'd be prosecuted and you'd spend a long time in a very dark, cold cell. But you can walk right into the throne room of the God of the universe. You can come boldly to the throne of grace and you can find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews chapter 4. You, child of God, through the intercessory work of Christ and the Holy Spirit sent into your heart, you can walk right into the throne of God and you can ask Him to help you when you are in distress. Does that not comfort your hearts this morning? You know what? I live in a world where the politicians don't care and the leaders don't care and the rich people don't care, the celebrities don't care. I got all over them a couple of weeks ago. But you know, there is somebody who cares. Your Savior, the Lord Jesus, always cares. And you know what? He's the only one that matters. 
because his power supersedes all other power in this world. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's a greater authority and a greater power than anyone else. And you have access to his throne where he rules, an eternal lordship. He's had from all eternity, from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. There's no God before him. There's no God after him. And you have privilege to come into his throne room, to stand before him and to ask him what you have need of in your day-to-day life. Praise God for that. And Paul says here, instead of worrying, to let your supplications be made unto the Lord. There's a couple of places I want to go to in the Psalms. You know the Psalms are so rich and experiential. They tell us more about Christ than any other book of the Bible. But we also learn more about the strugglings of the child of God in this world in the Psalms than we do in any other book of the Bible. Psalm 23 is the first Psalm we'll look at this morning. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. What was the title of today's message? I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord is my shepherd. As a sheep, I am a dependent. I'm a dependent, but I'm not the dependent of some lowly shepherd in the Middle East or some farmer here in the Southeast United States. But my shepherd is the Lord, the King of creation, the God of this universe who created us, who set the rules, who provides for us. God himself is my shepherd. Sheep are so helpless. A sheep has no ability to outrun a wolf. Have you ever seen a sheep in the wild with all of its wool, with all of the fluff that grows on it? It's extremely heavy. They're dumpy creatures. They're dumb creatures. They can't outsmart the wolf. They can't do anything but stand around in a pasture all day, blate, follow each other around, eat grass, and drink. And they don't even like to drink from rushing water. If the water's rushing, they're afraid. They have to be led beside still waters. And that's exactly what God does for us. We are helpless. So many times we are helpless. We're at the prey of were the prey of the predatorial creatures of this world oh what a scary terrifying place this world is but god is my shepherd and because of that what i shall not want now we are by nature very covetous people want here means to do without it doesn't mean that there's never anything that i want oh, of course we all want things there are things in our lives that we want we all have Those of us that have children in the home, we know all about the wants of our children. Birthdays and Christmas and can I do this chore? Can I do that chore? One particular daughter who will remain unnamed would spend every day of every week at every thrift store in North Alabama. If she doesn't go to the thrift store that day, her parents are of all men most miserable. 
because I will be asked four dozen times, can we go, can we go? It's the same junk that they had yesterday. What do you want to go back for? Why? We want. We're covetous people. There's always something we want. But the word want here means to do without that which I stand in need of. I shall not go without the necessities of life. God sees fit that there will be seed time and harvest. We'll look at a passage from Psalm 37 in a moment that observes that we will not do without what we need to eat and drink. The necessities of this life are, as we observe in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 8, food and raiment. Food and raiment. I'm sorry to burst your bubble if you think that God has entitled you to a fancy home and all the latest gadgets and the newest iPhone, whatever it is that came out. You know, people pay a car payment every year for the, each month of the year for the latest phones that come out, I think. And God hasn't promised me that I'll have the newest phone that hits the market or the best suits. I don't have to be dressed like a, like a celebrity, but he has promised me, promised me, promised you food and raiment, food and raiment. He will provide you what you need when you are following him. We'll look at a passage today that says that. It might not be a three-story home in a gated community in Madison County, Alabama. But he's promised you food and raiment. And he will provide what he's promised. We live such bloated lives in terms of stuff, we wouldn't know what to do if we lived the lives of our grandparents or their grandparents. Think about the quality of life when some of you were young. I've had this conversation a few times with Sister Faye, I believe, talking about the way it was when she grew up. And she'll often remark that when we grew up, by today's standards, we didn't have what people have today. And I guess you might say that we were poor compared to people today, but everyone else lived the same way. We didn't know any different. We all lived the same. And we were all totally happy. In a day where you get your own milk from your own cow... And you have to plow the field by the sweat of your face and gather the eggs from the chickens in the morning and wear old clothes with patches sewn up together. You know, young people back then, jeans were bought intact and thick and dark and blue. And they wore out and got holes in them. And then you sewed the holes together with patches. You didn't buy them with holes already in them. But they came... And you wore them out, and you might have one pair or two. And everyone was happy, and everyone was content, because that was just a standard of living in the day. If it's one thing I'm being with all of my facetiousness today, or one thing I'm attempting with the facetious comments today, it's to let us know how good we have it in this country. Amen. Oh, don't we have it so good. It's always 70 degrees inside. We always have light. We have water, clean water. Clean water, food, clothing, God provides. God has been so good to us. If we have food and raiment, as he says in 1 Timothy 6, let us be content. Because God is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie in green pastures. He nourishes me, leads me, leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. I have restoration each and every day. 
He leads me in the paths of righteousness. And I might say that you find the greatest providence in your life and the greatest peace in your life when you walk in the path of righteousness. Think about the prodigal son and his life and all that happened in his life when he departed from the Lord. He was a Jewish man and yet he found himself feeding swine and he would have eaten the husks of the swine, the food that the pigs were fed. And no one would even give him to eat. And he came to himself and he went back to his father's house. And his father places a ring on his hand and a robe around his shoulders. He killed the fatted calf because his son that was dead to him was now returned. We find the providence. We find the care. We find the compassion. We find the leadership when God leads us in the paths of righteousness. Where is it, child of God, that you find this life wherein you're careful for nothing? It's in the path of righteousness. So much so that if David had walked through the very valley of the shadow of death, death on all sides, darkness all around, he would fear no evil because God is with him and his rod and his staff comfort him. God prepares a table in the, even the presence of David's enemies. He anoints his head with oil. His cup runs over. Goodness and mercy follow him all the days of his life. Psalm 37, another passage that we want to consider from the Psalms. Psalm 37 is a psalm that you need to remember. It's a little lengthy to perhaps commit to memory at 40 verses, and we won't consider all 40 of those verses today. But when you're in trouble, particularly when enemies of this world attack you, when people conspire against you, when people lie about you, when people seek to harm you. This is a psalm for you. Psalm 37 gives us what I would refer to as encouraging principles in the midst of suffering or the threat of an enemy. Verse 1 of this psalm sets the context. Notice it. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. Fret not thyself because of the evildoers. Don't worry about it. Fret not. It's not a word that we use every day. But I think that we all understand what the word fret means. Don't have anxiety because of evildoers, because of the destruction that is so common in this world. And don't be envious against the workers of iniquity. Now, let me just say this, and if you want to read later Psalm 73, you got Psalm 37 that speaks of evildoers, Psalm 73 that speaks about the prosperity of evildoers. Psalm 73 laments the fact that in this world, those who are evil live very lavish, powerful lives. And they do that because they are without the chastening of the Lord. God's chastening brings us down. When we lift ourselves up all high and mighty, if we engage in sinful activity, if we engage in the dog-eat-dog, climb the ladder by stepping on the heads of others, God will humble us because to the child of God, pride goes before a fall. The Lord chastens every son he receives, as Hebrews says. But the wicked have no chastening. They have no guidance. They have no discipline in this world. And so their lives usually result in great prosperity, great oppression, 
They are the wolf to our sheep. We are their prey. They are many times our predators. And David says here, fret not thyself, nor be envious. Asaph in Psalm 73 spoke about the envy that he had when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now he would also tell you that he went into the house of the Lord and he considered their end. How God had put them in slippery places and then he glorified God and asked God to forgive him for thinking like a fool and being envious at the wicked. And then that Psalm 73 ends with him saying, so well, I'll go and talk to sinners and, and convert them and share God's word with them. He repented of that. God opened his eye to that. Psalm 37, the Psalm of David, deals with the evildoers and the prosperity of the workers of iniquity. Verse 2, they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. We've seen that so many times in human history. Think about some of the tyrannical leaders that achieved as much power as a man can achieve in the world. Adolf Hitler had much power, but what happened to him in the end? Saddam Hussein had much power. What happened to him in the end? Gaddafi had much power. What happened to him in the end? We've seen it over and over in the history of the world. Fret not thyself. Now, there are several words of counsel, and I'll focus on them one at a time in Psalm 37. First of all, we find the exhortation to trust. Verse 3, Trust in the Lord and do good, so shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. So the first thing that we want to think about today is trust in the moments of Sorrow in the moments of worry, in the moments of anxiety, when you don't understand, you don't know, and this world seems to be against you, you trust in God. You trust God. Lord, I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know this. You've never left me, you've never forsaken me, and I trust in you. God, I trust in you. And so number one, we trust. Number two, delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. That's a precious promise to me. And if you didn't know that verse before, look at it again and commit it to memory. Delight thyself in the Lord, and He shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Is God your delight? Do you delight in Him? Now notice that He says that if you delight yourself in the Lord, He'll give you the desires of your heart. Now the first thing that our mind does with that passage is say, Aha! See there, I can have whatever I want in this world. I've just got to delight myself in God. But you see, when you delight yourself in God, the things that your heart desires are going to be different than the things that your heart would desire if you were simply following the ways of this world. When you delight yourself in the Lord, the desires of your heart change. And suddenly you desire righteousness and peace and holiness. You desire mercy and judgment and justice and all of the wonderful attributes of God suddenly become your desire. The will of God in this world becomes your desire in this world. You delight yourself in the Lord and He gives you the desires of your heart. Jesus assures us in the New Testament that when we ask in His name, God gives us what we ask for. We know through the book of James, which is a passage we'll consider today if we have enough time, that we are to pray and we are to say, if it is God's will, we shall do this and we shall do that. If it is God's will, 
When we delight in the Lord, we ask of things that He would desire. And if it is His will, and it should be, if we're delighting in Him, then He answers and He gives us what we ask for. What are some things that we would ask for if we delight in the Lord? Lord, help me to have greater holiness. More holiness give me, I believe is one of the lyrics in our hymn book. Another one, purer in heart, O God, help me to be. When we delight ourselves in the Lord, we want to be of a purer heart. We want to desire what God desires. We want to abstain from what God would have us to abstain from. It's a desire of my heart that this church continue to grow. By the way, that's something that I have prayed for every week of every year since I have been here. And you know what? God has blessed in His time for this church to grow. Because I want more people to hear the gospel in this community. I want their lives to be changed. I want you to grow in grace. My prayer for you every week is that you would grow in grace, that you would be a disciple. When I wake up in the morning, one of my prayers is for the people who attend church here to be disciples that day. You see, you might be a disciple today and not tomorrow and then again on Tuesday. You're a son of God every day. But you're not a disciple if you're not studying and learning. My prayer to God is that you would be discipled and that I would be discipled. And how convicting is it for me to realize so many times that a church rarely, if ever, rises above her leadership. If I'm not learning, you won't be learning. If I'm not praying, will you be praying? Will you rise above the example that God sends? He sends pastors to be examples to the flock. Oh, what a burden that is upon the shoulders of God's pastors. When we delight in the Lord, it changes the desires of our heart. We ask for things that are in accordance with His will, and He hears us, and He gives us what we ask for. Verse 5, we find another word. We've had trust, we've had delight, now we have commit. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. Commit yourself to the Lord. Commit is a strong word, and it involves the will. It involves choice. It involves you making the decision when you wake up each and every morning, today is a day that I will devote to the Lord. You might say that if someone asks you, they walk up, and young man, there's a pretty young lady that walks up to you, and she says, hey, would you like to go out sometime? And you say, I can't because I'm in a committed relationship. We know what commitment means. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Verse 7, we find the word rest. Rest in the Lord. Discipleship is such an awesome thing. So many times it's presented in the world as the rigid, do this, don't do that, harsh, cold Phariseeism of the first century. But did you know that there's great rest in the Lord? What is the gospel message? Summed down to its most basic element. You find it in Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. The gospel is a message of comfort, and so the gospel then is a message of rest. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, And I will give you what? Rest. The gospel is a gospel of rest. The New Testament is a group of people who seek Christ, 
and find rest unto their souls. We trust, we delight, we commit, and we rest in the Lord. We wait patiently for Him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in the way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Verse 8. Cease from anger. Trust, delight, commit, rest, cease. There are some things that we need to cease from. Namely, anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. That's one that I struggle with. Moms and dads, do you struggle with anger? It is hard to live in a home with several other sinners. It's hard to live in a home with one sinner, you. It is much harder to live in a home with several other sinners. Cease from anger. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. And finally, verse 34, we already use this word in verse 7. Wait. Wait on the Lord and keep His way. And He shall exalt thee to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, thou shalt see it. We trust. We delight. We commit. We rest. We cease. And we wait. Psalm 37 gives us so many details about discipleship. So many behaviors that we're to engage in in this world. If you expected a 10-step program for how to restructure and revitalize your life, Scripture would disappoint you here. So many times it's not the 10-step 10 10 step fix-it program that people are famous for writing books about and giving seminars about. Oh, it's much more simple than that. You trust you delight, you commit, you rest, you cease, and you wait. Psalm 37 gives us three encouragements. Verse 11, contrasting the wicked and the righteous, but the meek shall inherit the earth. What does the word meek mean? Sometimes we think of it to mean weak in some sense. Someone who's a pushover, but... Jesus tells us in that passage we quoted a moment ago from Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28, I'm meek and lowly. Was Jesus weak? Was Jesus weak? No, Jesus wasn't weak. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame for the glory that was set before him. Jesus when is a lamb dumb before the shears, opening not his mouth, he stood there and he took the beatings of men without so much as a whimper. He was laid over a stump and they scourged his back with a whip. Does that sound like a weak man to you? And then he carried his cross from where he was tried up to Golgotha. And then there he stretched out his arms upon the tree. They didn't force him. He could have called angels from heaven to annihilate humankind. He could have simply spoken every one of them into the lake of fire. It is His voice that will cast the wicked into hell for eternity. And yet He went as a lamb dumb before the shearer's opening, not His mouth. And He hung upon the tree. And of all that men had done to Him, the worst was yet to come. 
His father poured out his wrath upon him. He turns the son off so men could not see what happened to his son. His son was made to be sin for us, the iniquity of us all. It was laid upon him of all of his sheep, Isaiah 53. There upon the cross he cries out to his father, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He bore our sin. Does that sound like a weak man to you? Oh, but he was ever meek. Meek, meekness, means lack of self-will. It means to be a humble person. Humility. Rather than his own will, rather than our will, Jesus always did the will of the Father. To be a meek man simply means that you bow your knee to the sovereignty of God In His Word, His prescriptive will, as recorded in His Word, you do that which God has commanded. The meek shall inherit the earth. He shall and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Now let me just ask you a question. How is it that we obtain peace in a church and we obtain peace in our home and we obtain peace in our lives? It is simply through being meek. What is meekness? Lack of self-will. When we pursue the will of Christ, when we say, Thy will be done, not only for the way that we are to behave ourselves, but the dispositions that we are to have. Two weeks ago we studied love and charity from 1 Corinthians 13. That's a good place to start. We We will have the abundance of peace. Now this verse here, verse 11, Psalm 37 and 11, The meek shall inherit the earth. This is the promise for this world, but it's also a promise for the world to come. Meek child of God, understand that there is a new heaven and a new earth that you will inherit, you will live in for all of eternity. And you're there through your Savior, Jesus Christ, as a joint heir. But you've got that promise. This world might chew you up and spit you out. You might be accounted as a sheep to the slaughter. But there's a world coming where you will be forevermore with your Savior, Jesus And you will inherit that world. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5, Jesus quotes this in the Beatitude as He gives all of these great promises to His children as He describes their various personality traits contrasted with the world around them. The poor in spirit, them that mourn, they which hunger and thirst after righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, those which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In the midst of that, in verse 5, blessed are the meek, For they shall inherit the earth. Quoting from the book of Psalms, the place that he quoted the most from in his personal ministry. Blessed are the meek. Encouragement number two from Psalm 37, another famous passage. And you've probably heard this one many times before. I have been old or young and now am old. I have been young. Some of you are still young. Some of us are still kind of young. I'll claim kind of young. You know, 40 is the new 20, 60 is the new 40. I don't know who makes those things up, but I like it. I've been young, and now I'm old. I've lived a long life. I've seen a lot of things. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken. Beloved, you know why the righteous won't be forsaken? What did Jesus cry out upon the cross? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He stepped in your place. We deserved to be forsaken. And He didn't. And yet He took that upon Himself so that God's mercy can abound unto us. 
I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. Does that mean that we always live lives that are, the phrase that I like to use, fat and sassy? No. But God will provide. God always provides. As we think about God providing, let me interject a tangent here. And This sermon could be three hours and we'll make it one. Sometimes God provides directly by His providence. There was a time when the apostles were to pay tribute and Jesus says, cast over there. And they pull up a fish and in the fish's mouth is a coin that they take and go to pay the tribute with. Sometimes God directly provides for you. But how God often provides for His children is through other of His children. God provides for His children through His other children. Read the book of James. Read the book of 1 John. We read a lot in those passages about caring for our brothers and sisters in this world and especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the radio program this week was or last week, was on the subject of caring and loving our brothers as we've been studying together through 1 John. But one of the passages that we considered was that His commandments are not grievous. And as none of His commandments are grievous, the context of that passage is loving our brothers and sisters. And as John defines loving our brothers and sisters earlier in 1 John, he would do so by saying, if you see a brother or sister in Christ be in need of this world's goods, how can you love him if you don't provide for him? in his moment of need. And suddenly we realize what it means then that his commandments aren't grievous. It is more joyful to give than to receive. It's not grievous to care and to love and to help be the hands of Christ in the life of a suffering child of God. Oh, I encourage you. If you see suffering in the world, jump up, rise up, intercede, Make a difference. If a tornado goes through town, we meet, we help patch roofs, we help pick up stuff from people's yards. Hurricane blows through Panama City, we go down there and we patch roofs and we bring water and we bring hand sanitizer and we bring food. Why? Because we love Christ. And how can we say we love Christ if we don't love those that belong to Christ? How is it that God provides? Many times He provides through His children helping one another. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. Encouragement from Psalm 37, number 3, verse 40. The Lord shall help them. Who is them? Look at verse 39. The salvation of the righteous is of the Lord. He is their strength in their time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them. And deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in Him. As we begin to bring our thoughts today to a close, there's a few passages that I want to give you just to encourage your mind in this principle that we've shared for you today or with you today. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 9, excuse me, verse 19. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. 
I love this passage for a variety of reasons, but the main reason I love this passage is because of that word that is used to describe God. God is a faithful creator. Now, God has a very special relationship with His children. And we know that God is faithful to His children. And that's something we'll consider in just a moment, very briefly. But I want you to understand that God is faithful to all of His creation. God is faithful to care for and provide for even those who hate Him. We recently said that the very breath that the atheist uses to curse God in this world, God provided for them. What audacity must one have to use the very breath and energy that God provided to curse the God who gave it? We use a saying down here in the South, don't bite the hand that feeds you. That's biting the hand that feeds you. It's biting the hand that feeds you. God is a faithful creator. As we think about His faithfulness, in creation, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You've heard that it's been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. His commandments might not be grievous, and it might be our reasonable service to do them, but it doesn't mean that they're always easy. Is it easy to love someone that hates you? No. We recently talked about this here. But I want you to notice what God does. You'll be the children of your Father, that is, you'll display, you'll show that you're a child of God to the world by the things that you do. You look like and act like your Father in heaven when you love those that hate you. For He maketh His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. God is so faithful as Creator that He sends rain and sunlight even on those that despise Him and seek to even harm you because they hate Him so much they hate you too. He is that good and faithful as a Creator that He even cares for those who deserve to be destroyed. But God has a very special care over you. As the world stands, it will be seed time and harvest. God has promised. He gave His rainbow, His sign of His covenant after the flood of Noah that He'll never destroy the world again by water. We know there's coming a day in which He'll destroy the world by fire. But until that day, He will never destroy the world as vile of a place as it is. And He provides. Seed time and harvest, He provides. As faithful as He is to the creation, God cares infinitely more for you. What does Peter say in 1 Peter 4? To cast your care upon Him, for He careth for you. Careth there doesn't convey emotion, but provision. He is who cares for you like a parent cares for their child or a shepherd his sheep. Matthew chapter 6, verses 24 through 34. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon there means money, by the way. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, what ye shall drink, 
nor yet your body. What you shall put on is not the life more than the meat and the body more than raiment. Don't worry about your next meal, about your food, about your clothing. Now, how many of us in this world are worrying about what new car we're going to buy? Or fixing the one that we have or fixing up something broken in our nice homes? Think about it. The perspective of Jesus, a man with no home. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Walking before a group of people with no homes around a countryside as he heals them and preaches to them and divides loaves and fishes to feed them, he tells them, take no thought what you eat, what you drink, what you wear. Don't worry about it. Behold the fowls of the air. Young people, fowls mean bird. Behold the birds. They sow not. The word sow means plant. If, if you come out tomorrow and the robins are in your backyard planting the spring crop, you might want to check, out, check that out. You'd be hiring a psychiatrist. The birds don't plant, neither do they reap. They don't harvest corn. Neither do they gather into barns. They don't store their food. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Now let me ask you the question. Look at what Jesus asks. This is Jesus asking. Are ye not, more, uh, not much better than they? Are ye not much better than they? Did God send His Son into the world to die for birds? No. And yet he feeds the birds. He even feeds his enemies. Are you not much more better than the birds or the enemies? God will take care of you. God will take care of you. He talks about worry in this passage, and we won't go there for the sake of time. He talks about how the field is clothed with lilies that are more glorious than even the clothing that Solomon wore. And God intends to destroy the grass of the field one day in a fire, and yet He clothes the field with lilies. Shall He not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink? Wherewithal shall we be clothed? Your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of these things, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. What things? What you need to eat what you need to drink, what you need to wear. God will take care of you. I won't turn there, but in the book of Matthew chapter 10, God cares so much and knows so much about you that Jesus said that even the very hair of your head, the very hairs of your head, are numbered. Do you know how many hairs you have on your head? Some of you might be tempted to say a lot fewer than there were 20 years ago. You might get to a point in your life where you can say none. Jesus knows every hair upon your head. He knows more about you than you know about you. He knows more about your needs than you know about your needs. 
He knows more about what you will go through a year from now, two years from now, a lifetime from now, than you know. And He cares for you so much so that He sent His Son into the world to die for you. Take no thought, ye of little faith. I'll close with a simple reading of Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 5. Let your conversation, your lifestyle be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for never leaving us, never forsaking us. We know, Lord, that you're such a gracious and giving creator. You're so faithful. You provide for us. You care for us. But beyond the provision you have for this world, you love us in a special way. As your covenant people, as your sheep, you love us and you provide for us and you care for us and you do wonderful things for us. We know, Lord, that we could look back on every day if we had your mind if we had insight into your heart and we would see that every breath, every moment, there's something that you've done for us, something that you've saved us from, something that you've prevented, something that you've hindered. And Father, you've given us so many great, wonderful things, our clothing, our food, our water, our homes, our vehicles. Lord, you've, you've given such wonderful things to us, our families, our friends. And above all of that, naturally, Lord, you've given us our people. You've given us your church. You've given us your gospel. Father, you gave us your Son. We can never repay you for what you've done, but we want to spend eternity trying. And so, Father, we just say today, thank you, Lord, so much for your mercy. Forgive us for our many sins. Forgive us for our ungrateful hearts. Lord, we know that your mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. It's in thy name we pray. Amen.